Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. quake, quake. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom Bionic. And we're back with another week and another great Future Quake Show. And we've got a very famous guest. We've got Dr. Jerome Corsi. Yes, he's written a number of great books, including uh, Unfit for Command. Uh, it was about John Kerry, uh, the late great USA. And if you listen to any kind of talk radio, you're going to hear Dr. Corsi there. Cause yes. He's one of the most prolific guests that you'll find on any major national uh, radio broadcast, and it's really an honor that he'll even come on our show. Yeah, yeah, very schooled, very intelligent, uh, Harvard graduate, Ph.D., political science, I believe. Right. And also a, also a man of faith. And an expert insider on what yeah. goes on behind closed doors mm-hmm. with national governments, and we're going to talk this week about uh, the, the actions that uh, not only are political but corporate people are doing to try to set up these supernational uh, groups like uh, what may evolve into a North American Union one day, and he is the point man. Uh, he's the guy. He's the heavy hitter, exposing all this stuff. That's right. That's right. So, with no further ado, we need to go catch that, and then we'll come back with a little discussion. So, this is our first segment of the week of our interview with Dr. Corsi. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Dr. Future with Tom Bionic, and we have a very esteemed guest with us today to the Future Quake Show. Actually, someone who's returning. Uh, it's going to be his first visit to our newly formatted show here, Dr. Jerome Corsi, uh, who has numerous titles, uh, including author of the recent book, The Late Great USA. Uh, but I'm assuming a large part of our new audience here may be unfamiliar even with you and your tremendous work. And uh, if you don't mind, Dr. Corsi, I'd like to just familiarize them briefly with your background and some of your accomplishments and experiences. Would that be all right? Sure, that'd be fine. Okay. Well, uh, you correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, uh, as I understand it, you've earned your Ph.D. in political science from Harvard, I I believe a school I've heard of before. That's correct. Uh, You were (laughs) even considered a 2008 presidential candidate by the Constitution Party. Really? Uh, Yeah, I declined to do it, but they did ask me. They were thinking about it. Well, it sounds like you had the same problems that I normally do. Uh, uh, You you have a higher power you answer to, right, your wife? Well, that's right, exactly. My <laughs> wife comes, comes first in that category. Yeah, Mrs. Future has the same veto power here as well, so I understand. Right. And, uh, we've had Dr. Baldwin on here on our show before. Uh, 
a couple of times and plan to have him back, who is the actual well, he candidate. he has my support. Okay. Well, we've got that on the record here. Uh, but uh, most importantly, other than being on just about every talk show of any major importance that you'll ever find on the radio or elsewhere, you are an author of a number of extremely provocative and popular books, including Unfit for Command which had a huge impact on yeah. the uh, previous presidential election in 2004. I read that, I read that book. Yeah. You read it? Okay. It very good. Uh, Black Oil Stranglehold, Atomic Iran, and your current bestseller, The Late Great USA. Uh, you also serve as a regular columnist for WorldNet Daily, one of the largest sources for news content on the web. Uh, and I've told you this before, and I want to tell our new listeners that uh, I regard you as one of the most even-handed uh, investigative reporters that are out there. Uh, you critique both the left and the right uh, with what's going on, and uh, I consider you relatively unique in doing that. But you do very aggressive journalistic research, which you're going to share with us tonight, uh, digging out all sorts of cutting-edge data. Um, if it's right on the frontier of what's going on, Dr. Corsi will share it with us uh, today. Uh, and uh, you just find out all sorts of things about what's going on behind closed doors. You're not just simply providing commentary on the news is the point I'm trying to make. You're actually out there finding news that's not reported elsewhere as it's happening and exposing it to us through your connections. Well, I'm uh, now a staff reporter. I'm, I'm a, a staff reporter with WorldNet Daily. Okay. And if I'm not writing a book, I'm reporting on WorldNet Daily almost every day. Okay. All right. And uh, we're also checking with your deep throat connections uh, that you've got planted elsewhere in these areas getting your information, correct? Well, I get information everywhere I can. As long as it's valid information and I can verify it, I'm happy to go with it. Well, to get things uh, get things started, I just want to make sure our listeners knew how prestigious a person that we have here uh, and, and, and uh, what, just what an opportunity we have here to, to get some very useful information this week from you. Uh, to start off our discussion, could you inform our audience uh, a little bit about the collaborative actions uh, of the last year or so by the presidents of the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Um, and one such venture, I think, that started kicking these things off was called the Security and Prosperity Partnership. Um, I, I know uh, many of our listeners may not be familiar with all of any of this, so if you could very briefly just summarize what has transpired to lead us where we are today. Uh, what are these preliminary actions all about? What have they they've been up to? And are they related at all to some of the uh, curious economic and immigration policies that we have now today by our government? Well, I, I started out, I wrote the book, The Late Great USA, and it's subtitled The Coming Merger with Mexico and Canada. And I started out with the um, question, you know, we're, we're seven years into a war on terror, and yet we've got a wide open border with Mexico. It really doesn't make any sense. I mean, you'd think the first thing we would have done after 9-11, especially knowing that the hijackers who flew the planes into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, we're here illegally, uh, one way or the other, that we would have secured our borders and tightened down our immigration law enforcement, but we didn't do that. In fact, if anything, we moved to continue to open the border, with, especially with Mexico. And I thought that demanded explanation. Why were we doing it? I didn't assume, you know, President Bush just forgot to close the border one day. I assumed the border was open because that's the way President Bush wanted it. And so as you look into it and research it, I found the Security and Prosperity Partnership in North America, which had been agreed to in Waco, Texas, March 23, 2005. Mm -hmm. At the end of a summit meeting, there was Vincente Fox of Mexico and um, uh, Paul Martin of Canada, who was then the Prime Minister of Canada. 
held a press conference and they declared that we were in the Security and Prosperity Partnership in North America. There had been no treaty, no law. Yeah, and Congress hadn't voted on that or anything, as I recall. Congress didn't even know about it. <laughs> Gosh. And, you know, just a press conference, and they came out. We were in this new status of relationship with Mexico and Canada. It was like NAFTA two, or as some people said, it was developing into NAFTA on steroids. That's another way it was mm-hmm. described. Mm-hmm. And what uh, the relation was was that we were constituting these working groups, which are bureaucratic working groups with Mexico and Canada, trilateral bureaucracy, and we were starting to integrate and harmonize our laws with Mexico and Canada. Well, integrate and harmonize means change, and I um, didn't see any congressional justification for that. It was all the bureaucracies of the three countries with three leaders deciding to get together on their own. Mm-hmm. So I filed a Freedom of Information Act request. You know, the government created this SPP.gov web- website at sampeterpaul.gov. It's a Department of Commerce government website that has the Security and Prosperity Partnership information on it. It's, it's mostly pretty boring. It's hard to read. But if you work your way through it, you can see that we've created these 20 working groups. So that's their secret weapon on being able to disguise our activities to make it so completely dry and boring. Right. Only a handful of people. Only somebody who's got a PhD and is used to, you know, like myself, and or a lawyer or somebody of that nature, used to reading boring stuff, trained in it. So their whole generation of dumbing us down in our education system and mindless TV has now worked to their yeah, benefit. SPP.gov is not like MTV. Okay. <laughs> well, then most of the public would not be interested in it. That's right. There's no American Idol on it. Yeah, okay. No, no Britney Spears. Oh, no. No yeah, Britney you'll... Spears, no football game, no baseball game, no no uh, playoffs. Yeah, you'll never get people interested that way. So anyway, so so you dig in there, and what, what are you starting to find? Well, I, I submitted a Freedom of Information Act request, and I got 2,000 pages of more boring documents. And what they sent me, I published on page 81 of the book, they put in that pile the organizational charts of these working groups. I still today don't know how I got them. They're not published anywhere on the government websites. But these are the official organizational charts of the working groups. And so all the little boxes, you know, the North American Transportation Working Group, the North American Food and Agricultural Working Group, the North American Energy Working Group, with top-level bureaucrats in each of the three countries. Well, they report to three cabinet secretaries. The one in the middle is Secretary of State Rice. She's at the top. And then the prosperity working groups report to Secretary of Commerce Michael Cher- I'm sorry, uh, Carlos Gutierrez. Prosperity ones, re- that's where they report. And the security ones then report to Chertoff and Homeland Security. Hmm. Then the boxes report on up into the White House. And they go to the National Security Council and the Homeland Security Council, and then from there to the President. As the same exact uh, organizational chart in Mexico and Canada, three heads of state in each of the three governments. And, you know, if you can find a formal organizational chart of these working group bureaucrats structured, but that that's not published anywhere, and uh, it's a trilateral structure already in existence, 
well, we've got a shadow government the bureaucracy has created right. that exists they're not telling anybody about. So, so let me make sure I understand this. Somebody must have thought about this for a long, long, long time. And without any kind of approval, not only from the public, but even from their elected officials, this very, very detailed setup, obviously it's had a lot of corporate uh, collaboration uh, along with them for a long time. So we, we assume there's a, there's a money angle uh, to all this. So they, they put all this together for all this period of time. And let me guess, not only have they not told us, but not a, a, a member of the major news media has lifted much of a finger to try to get behind all this like you have. That's right. In fact, they just call it all a conspiracy theory, even though I've got 30 pages of footnotes in the book and refer to countless government websites where all this information is readily available. I'm just reporting back what the government reports. It's all out there to read. That's one of the reasons I think the book became a New York Times bestseller. So our press, which is supposed to be the the guardian to keep our elected officials honest, to look out for the public interest, and to be able to hold hold them accountable, is is either asleep at the wheel and not doing their job, or possibly somehow in collusion, like they can be shown in other areas. Uh, how can you explain why they've not covered this further? And if so, have any of the major mainstream media discussed your book with you, and what are their comments on on what you expose? Well, the you know about the only reason to get a New York Times anymore is if you've got a dog. <laughs> <laughs> Birdcage liner is what you're implying? Yes. Or, or birds. You know, uh-huh. You've got a bird. The New York Times serves that purpose pretty well, too. Mm-hmm. So even the crossword puzzle is uninformed at this stage, huh? Well, <laughs> you know, the, the problem is that the, the news media are also owned by the multinational corporations. Mm-hmm. Now, the model here of the Security and Prosperity Partnership Working Groups comes right out of the European Union. European Union has working groups from the various countries that the bureaucrats constitute in Brussels and Luxembourg, and they run everything. They tell the legislators what laws they can pass and what laws they can't pass. Now, that's the that's the structure of a shadow government, a multinational regional shadow government that's just adopted here. Then the only the only uh, consultants that they constitute for the working groups is what's called the North American Competitiveness Council, and that's 30 multinational corporations in North America, the three countries, chosen by the Chambers of Commerce in each of the three countries. Again, no voting and who's the members. The North American Competitiveness Council, when the Security and Prosperity Partnership working groups get together, like in the annual Security and Prosperity Partnership Summit meeting, uh, there's one in August in 2007 in Montebello, Quebec, and the last one was held last month in um, New Orleans. So the mm. North American Competitiveness Council goes to those meetings, and they meet behind closed doors with the working group bureaucrats. Well, we in the press, I go to those meetings, and you know, you get to stay in the press pool and play video golf. Well, the press meet. Well, the North American Competitiveness Council, multinational businesses meet behind closed doors with the leaders and the bureaucrats, and they change the laws and regulations. So, no reporting to the press at all, no transparency. It's almost like what happened with Obama when they uh, kidnapped all those officials and kept them on the plane while they, they did a head fake. Well, that Obama. Did, the press is just not involved in the, you know, the press is there to report on what the government wants reported. Right, mm. right. Not and, there to be investigative or to dig or to answer, ask questions or to, 
you know, really find out what's going on. There's not a watchdog. It's just, you know, a public reporting service. Once you understand that, that you are being carefully dispensed information by our major media, that sounds so conspiratorial. Well, even even Rockef- David Rockefeller uh, thanked, I believe it was CNN and The Times and Fox News Network yes, for, you know, the complicit, complicity in... in for attending in, his meetings and learning yes. but not reporting on them. Yes, That's exactly. Right. And, and in fact, there was a recent uh, exposure of documents that came out. I know you know this better than me, Dr. Corsi. Uh, that showed a Pentagon plan to carefully plant retired military members, high-level officials, with our media that would promote a certain agenda, the government-wanted agenda. And that was done in, like, 1948, well, right? Well, I mean, this well, is just recent. Oh, I'm really, talking about okay. recently up to the war. Oh. The government would like to have and media uh, there just to tell the story they want told. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, that's not the job. The job is there to ask tough questions and to dig and to get underneath what the agenda is really all about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that doesn't make any difference whether it's Democrats or Republicans. Uh, it's the same. You've got to do the same level of digging to find out what's really going on. Mm-hmm. Too much of the reporting we're getting is, you know, they, the reporters go to these meetings, they get the news releases prepared for them, and they just rewrite them under their own byline. They haven't done any digging. They don't ask any hard questions. They don't want to rock the boat. So while you're spending all your time in the wee hours of the night sorting through this boring information, looking for nuggets to inform everyone, these people get to knock off early because they've been given the information they have. They they dress it up a little bit, meet their timeline, send it in, and they're off to the pool. Yeah, if I'm calling, you know, if I'm look investigating and writing what they don't want, I haven't run the risk that I get called the names and don't get invited to the, you know, White House Christmas dinners. Right. Does that mean well, you won't be cares? making you won't be making Bohemian Grove this year? That's right. I won't be making Bohemian Grove. Well, you'll save money on robe <laughs> on a black robe, you know. Right. So you're I don't okay. Get, <laughs> I don't get uh, offered all the corporate board jobs and other things to reward you for you know. I mean, I'm not going to be I'm not going to be a Fox News executive. I'm not going to be a New York. I'm not going to win a Pulitzer Prize. Even I'm though you're part your, of the club, your credentials dwarf. These these other people, I'm seeing more and more a, um, for lack of a better term, is an old term, jiggle vision, where you're getting these people who are models and dressing them up to be reporters, news reporters. Uh, it's it's absurd. I, these people seem to have no basic credentials, and they're taking over. Well, they're like face. Obama. They can read a teleprompter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you so, know, he can yeah. wear a suit, look good, and he can. Speak nicely off of a teleprompter. Now you get him away from his teleprompter, and you, you know you don't know what Obama's going to say. He doesn't do very well mm-hmm. in debates. Doesn't right. want to be in one. Won't be in a town hall meeting with McCain. And if you get most of the people who are out there reporting and demanded that they do the old investigative reporting and come up with something, most of them couldn't do it. Hmm. Well, I didn't mean to sidetrack you in that. Um, Obviously, this information, um, I, I hope we haven't glossed over this because, you know, we've heard this uh, before from you. This is a little bit of a primer here for our new listeners. But I, I don't want to diminish what you have already just told us, that there is a formal infrastructure that, that blurs the line between the corporate world and the government world, basically setting up as they please a whole new infrastructure of decision makers, uh, not only just for our country but for the entire North American continent. Now, as we understand, those of us who try to sort of 
look for this information and, and try best we can to understand that, that there is a fast track to expand this, as much as they may deny it, into an eventual North American Union, sort of a borderless uh, continent, with, continent with seamless policies and regulations. Uh, can you explain to us what you know as of today about uh, how this union is intended to become and you know how soon this possibly could be? And, and if it's adopted, how could it impact our daily lives of average Americans? Well, it's first of all, it's the same model that was used in Europe. In Europe, over a 50-year period, they moved from a coal and steel agreement that was put into place with the Treaty of Rome in 1957. And it was called the European Common Market. That's all it was at that time, correct? The Common Market, European Common Market. And then um, you know, they put together a series of European structures, the European Atomic Energy Agency, the European uh, Community, um, all sounding good, always for security and prosperity, always with the bureaucrats and the politicians denying that it would ever lead to a regional government, saying, oh, this is just economic, we're just trying to work economically to expand our markets with our neighbors, but knowing that it had to lead to economic and political arrangements. So it was a lie from the very beginning. And... Uh, what happened is over a 50-year period of time, by 1999, with accomplishing fait accomplis as they went along, you know, without announcing they were going to do it, allowing the people to work and live wherever they wanted to in Europe, saying you're European, you can go wherever you want in Europe and work, knowing that that created a mixture of labor before there was ever a determination that there was a European Union, uh, saying, oh, you have a right to have a European Union passport, you know, you're European in addition to an Italian uh, or, or German or a you know, Frenchman or whatever. And so over time, by the time the Treaty of Maastricht was, was voted in in 1999, and then the currency followed in 2001, you had a complete European Union governmental regional structure set up, the European Union president, a European Union parliament, European Union courts, and a currency. And those superseded the very, the individual countries. And it's happening here. I mean, look, we have a trans-Texas corridor, which we'll talk about, this superhighway that's going to be put in parallel to Interstate 35. Oh, well, let me stop you there, because I heard from the mainstream media that doesn't exist. Right. In fact, even the, uh, the except for Ron Paul, the other candidates insisted that it was not there. And, and they even go so far as to call people who say, look, I've got photos and I've seen yeah. it. They say they're conspiracy yeah. theorists. Please ignore the man behind the curtain or the signs on the side of the highway that mm-hmm. say the Texas Corridor. Mm-hmm. Well, because uh, you can't have somebody doesn't have a plan that has written on it, you know, North American NAFTA Superhighway, they, um, it's like Toynbee said, the historian, that they intend to deny with their mouths what they're doing with their hands. So you get Mary Peters, Secretary of Transportation, and get her to testify in Congress, and Ron Paul will tell you this, or you know Walter Good from Virginia, who's also very opposed to what North American Union is all about doing. He's got a resolution in Congress to block the North American Union. Um, so you know Congressman Good tells me, well, Mary Peters comes in and you ask her. Secretary Peters, is there a plan for North American Superhighway? And she says, oh, no, we don't have any such plan. Then she'll spend the next 45 minutes testifying about the Trans-Texas Corridor, how Sintra in Spain is going to finance it, how they're going to build it parallel to Interstate 35, 
how it's going to connect down with Mexico and the Mexican ports, how they're working with Canada and the Canadian Asian Pacific Gateway Transportation Plan, how they intend to develop railroads in the continental system. She just doesn't want to give them the name that it really is. Now, that's just another form of lie that's mm-hmm. down to, you know, Bill Clinton. You know, it depends on what the meaning of the word is. is. Right, right. And well, and they assume the public is going to glaze over and get back to their uh, to their media and uh, just ignore what's going on. That's like we, Bill Clinton saying, oh, that's not sex. I didn't have sexual relations <laughs> with that. That's not sex. Well, what is it then? You know, I mean, yeah. if he's going to define sex as only this particular act, well, then, you know, that's such a diversion from common sense, but it permits him to lie within his redefinition of what everything means. He's got to control the language. Well, it's the same here. They're just saying, oh, there's no North American NAFTA superhighway because they don't want to tell the truth well, about know, what they're really doing. For all the deception that these political figures are pulling across the American public, I'm even more disappointed in the American public specifically. Uh, I know s- somehow they're a product of their education and, and, and other things that have occurred in the last few generations, but, but but we don't hold any accountability except for a handful of us. We don't even look past what these people say and try to make sense of it. And in fact, uh, just as to give you an example, uh, one of the recent Republican debates happened right when the um, these uh, Iranian boats were coming toward one of our ships, and that strange voice came over the audio saying, "We are coming to blow you right. up and yeah. explode you." And that happened right before a debate, and every one of the de- the people in the debate was ready to go launch an attack against Iran immediately. And if, well, in fact, I can re- except for Ron, except Paul. Ron Paul. Yeah, yeah. I can remember uh, the minister Huckabee saying that he personally looked forward to leading some of these people to hell himself. Well, and Ron Paul was the only person who said, "Well, maybe we ought to check out before we start launching an attack." Until they find out that it's some heckler that's in uh, doing this stuff in the Persian Gulf, and and you know the American public doesn't hold any of these guys accountable for any of this. When you read, when you hear the uh, the exit polling uh, that they do with the interviews later, basically they're looking for one-liners and finding out uh, who looked most presidential or or you know who had a memorable line to say. Well, that's the problem is that you're dealing with the surface, and if you just listen to the surface, they all sound good. But the problem is, like, Ron Paul knows how to dig. Ron Paul knows what the truth is, and he's not going to put up with a lie. And I think increasingly the American people, one of the reasons, like great USA has done so well, one of the reasons I think candidates like Barack Obama are not going to do so well, is there's only so much lying that you can take. After a while, people are saying, why did I lose my manufacturing job? I was making $35 an hour. And now all the jobs I'm applying for pay, you know, $15 an hour, and they don't require skills. Like, you know, I mean, these are the people are saying, uh, wait a minute, why is my land being taken? Why, when I go to keeptexasmoving.com and look at the Texas Department of Transportation website, I find the comprehensive development agreement with Spain. I look at the you know, thousand-page environmental impact statement, and I see the highway is being planned to come through my backyard. Now, I guess this non-existent highway becomes real when people go to town hall meetings that the Department of Transportation of Texas is holding, and they say, yeah, that's the site of the road, and we did sign the agreement. It'll be even more real when they take their land. Exactly. 
which is happening in mass for that. Uh, What's happening? They're building SH-130. They're doing various segments of the highway, getting ready to start I-69 and also the Trans-Texas Corridor 35. They've held meetings on both. They've told people they're going to do it, and people have a choice whether to believe them or not believe what their government officials are, you know, telling them in these meetings. And again, the meetings are boring. You got to take four or five hours out of your evening and you got to go to um, a school or some other public place, sit in an auditorium with four or five hundred people and listen to a governor and a you know Department of, of, of Transportation official lie to you for 45 minutes before you can compete dance, ask a question. But this is a message for all citizens because Jerry Corsi can't be everywhere. There comes a time when citizens have to say it's my responsibility to go to meetings like this, even if they're local or state meetings, and set through all the boring stuff and not let them railroad stuff through and actually start to care a little bit. Isn't that right? Well, that's right. I expect people will care as the economic pain impacts their lives. When you see the dollar going down to being worthless, when you see gasoline costing $4 a gallon, you know, you begin to say, why is this happening? And as I predicted in the late great USA that the dollar would collapse. Mm-hmm. I predicted that they would cause a severe economic recession. Because as I studied it and looked at the economic data, I've been in finance for 25 years. I, you know, I've created financial firms and worked with international banks for 25 years. I've read this data and looked at it and advised people on economics for a long time. It, it, a recession was inevitable and the currency was inevitably going to fail. And energy prices were inevitably going to go up. And I've said it's nowhere near the end. Hmm. I, I think we're going to see gasoline at $5 a gallon. We're going to see oil at $155 a barrel. We're going to see the stock market trading under 12000 again. Hmm. Well, I want to go back to Dr. Corsi, back to what we were talking about with this example, with the European Union, which, which almost appears to me to be like the old adage of... Uh, cooking a frog by just slowly raising the heat, right. uh, where you start with just uh, economic, uh, very innocuous uh, goals, very small in scope, presumably, and then you slowly start adding, like, stone soup, peas and carrots and things. And before you know it, you've got a European Union soup put together under everybody's nose. And you lie. You call it a good name. Mm-hmm. You tell everybody how good this is going to be for them. You say you wouldn't do anything that would harm their interests. And then you start calling people names that have something to say against it. And uh, you object, you, yeah, you call them a name, you ridicule them. Mm-hmm. So they don't get listened to. Right. They either, either they're backward or uninformed or, or somehow don't have the best interest of the rest of the public amount. Uh, re- regarding the European Union, since this stuff has all come together, now they have European courts and a lot of uh, regulations that extend all, across all the countries of the European Union. What has been the impact to the average citizen in the European Union regarding their civil liberties and uh, you know other impacts that, that they've had in their daily life? Well, it's very detrimental. I mean, first of all, the freedoms are restricted. Freedoms are now given by the European Union. Uh, the national governments have lost control, not only over their own ability to put laws into place or have their own courts. They've even lost their currencies. So they've lost economic control of their economies. And they can't go back, in other words. Yeah, they can't well, I, withdraw. Yeah. I, they can't, at some point or other, I think there's going to come a movement to pull out of the European Union. I think it will happen. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to take a little while longer. 
Um, the uh, you know the average person, many people who, when the euro came in, it was one way to devalue a lot of the currencies. Mm-hmm. People who thought they had secure retirements went and found out how many euros they had, and they realized that they lost a lot of their nest eggs. You got people who are retirement age in Europe today suffering, and the middle class suffers. I mean, what you know when you go over to Europe and go to you know Italy or France, a hundred thousand lira might have bought a nice pair of shoes, but the equivalent of a hundred euro don't buy anything. Mm-hmm. You know, if the prices have gone up, the costs have gone up, and Europe's suffering the same way we are in the United States. A lot of the Manufacturing has moved to uh, China. China's got the whole. This whole process is a move to slavery. Multinational corporations have figured out how to get a new round of slaves in place. Now you're cutting to the chase here. Yeah, don't basically hold you're back. saying that's. I mean, you're basically that is the end game that's of what's going what on, whether want. it's economic or or whatever kind of way. It's it's slavery. Basically, they're not satisfied with the level of control they already have over us. They want more. Uh, back to the European uh, Union, you know, a couple things I noticed that they have accomplished is late last year, the European Union released a uh, something they just voted on. They had a separate council uh, of scientists that uh, was an advisory committee to the European Union. They voted on basically that what they did is they very explicitly declared that those who believed in creationism were declared enemies of the state and a threat to democracy. Right. Uh, which it's just un- unheard of to think that grown adults would be saying these kind of words. It's just almost like Nazism all over again. But they've actually made this official declaration that not only are you uh, backward and primitive and believing that God created the world, but you're actually a threat to those of us. And we know the next step will be will be tangible actions. The other thing I've noticed is that there are certain countries, not all countries are equal in the European Union. There's a heavy involvement from France, particularly Germany in the European Union. And Germany is able to bring all sorts of real influences in their laws, like uh, their ban on homeschooling, where they now... Uh, they even arrested you, a couple it, of people and it, put them in jail for homeschooling well, their children. Well, what right? happens is, is that they take your children and they put them under psychiatric care if they find your homeschooling. And we had some... Some Baptist missionaries from the from America that had to be smuggled out of there to save their kids from being taken away from them. Well, when you bring it up there, having been to Europe a couple of times, when you bring it up there, they Europeans generally get very weird about it. They go, "How do you socialize your kids? <laughs> yeah. How do you socialize?" Yeah, but aren't these the kind of things that happen when you have a handful of unelected people start writing the rules for a whole region? Well, and also we're talking about this is this is basic fascism. It's a the purpose of the state is to advance the global corporate interests. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that's of value is the economic interests of the global corporation. Mm-hmm. And they're godless by nature. Right. There's no morals. There's no values. They're happy to use slaves. And God is out of the mm-hmm. equation. So In fact, they would prefer slaves because one thing they do need is stability. They need stability to get steady and rise in corporate profits. So that, that that's why so many even of our American uh, companies went over and made these banana republics and other places where they put a tin-pot dictator mm-hmm. in charge is because under the iron boot they create a stability that allows an uninterrupted flow of uh, money and capital that comes out of the country. And, and now they're so brazen as to see the same opportunity with uh, Western countries like our own. Well, and unfortunately, human beings don't learn from history. 
It's like you know, your child is born. You got to you got to educate that child from the beginning. It's not born with any advantage of prior learning. So people ought to know that slavery doesn't work. We've had you know five thousand years of history, and every time people have been enslaved, the ones who end up at the bottom are the the people who tried to enslave them. If anybody wants to know how the corporate state evolves and behaves, just has to look at corporate, you know, Germany, see how Nazism works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because over time, what they do is they, you know, they're going to open up the gateway here to immigration. They'll have a lot of um, Muslims coming in throughout Europe, which is happening to depress wages at the lower end of the scale. They can get them to work in the lower class jobs. We're, we do better with the Spanish. Spanish have a wonderful work ethic, and you know they flood the United States and take up the lower class jobs. But in, in Europe, with the Islamic coming in, they they basically then decide in multiculturalism, hate crimes get further expanded. To you can't even say anything negative about Islam if you criticize it at all. You're the one who's guilty of a hate crime. And that's why the second most popular baby name in Britain is now Muhammad. Well. And as this all this happens, you know, again, people go along with it and in the process lose their own freedoms and lose their own ability to control their economic destiny. The only winners of this are the multinational corporations and the managers and owners who operate the multinational corporations. Everybody else loses. Now you're not you're you're not against Business or free enterprise, correct? Not at I mean, all. You, you've you've participated in that. I, I also am a small businessman and entrepreneur myself. I've benefited from free inter, free enterprise. It's an honorable activity to do to generate commerce, to generate wealth and income, and take take care of your families and those of others. But when it gets to the, the this the, the corporate environment where you you must have excessive profits quarter after quarter higher than before, that requires them to take desperate measures to keep raising the bar for what investors and boards require. Well, mostly that happens because of greed. What happens, people, the business has to have morals. You can't have business without morals. can't have any human activity without morals. And the morals are the fundamental morals we were all taught. Part of that is, you know, we fought a bloody battle with labor unions in the 20s and 30s, and regardless of what people think today about labor unions, we did determine that Marx was going to be wrong and that we were going to demand that labor be considered part of the capital equation since the people were going to get paid for their labor and that they were going to earn a living wage. That's when we decided to build a middle class. Uh, if we reverse that and say, no, it's okay to go use slaves, well, you know, at the end of the Civil War, we decided we decided that slavery was immoral. It was against God's law. Right. As also stupid business that we didn't need slaves in order to operate effective businesses of any kind, including cotton plantation businesses. And if I understand, the rest of the world had already given up on it for the most part because of the futility of it. Well, slavery doesn't work. Uh, it's a good short-term idea. And it's one of those things that you people think, well, this is going to be great. It's just another form of theft. And mm-hmm. theft doesn't work uh, mm-hmm. it, for a whole set of reasons. I mean, ultimately, you can't enslave people. Mm-hmm. It's immoral and it doesn't work. Now, uh, you... People reject it. They resist it. Uh, they uh, run away. They kill you. They uh, break the system. 
I mean, they, they fight it. There's all kinds of things they do besides it being just immoral. Mm-hmm. You've corrupted yourself and corrupted your own values and life and living and perspective in the process of succumbing to that evil. Now, we, we've talked about this corporate structure um, somewhat. Is there not, you're more well-skilled in this information than I am, isn't there a relationship between the term fascism and the term corporatism? And if so, can you explain that? Really? Well, corporatism, I mean, they're, they're somewhat separate. Corporatism really just refers to corporate thinking. I mean, we can have all kinds of corporate thinking. A corporate state is basically a fascist state. So that once the purpose of the state is to you know, serve the corporations and only the corporate interests. The state is fascist in nature. It um, does not value individual liberties. It doesn't look at individual freedoms or the development of people as the primary goal. It looks at the development of business, you know, the exploitation of labor, the exploitation of resources, and it, it makes profit the god. Now, if you go in that direction, you know, you've, you've lost your human values. To have a healthy society and a, and, a, and a healthy sovereign state does not yet require you go to the other extreme and go to the extremes of socialism and communism where the state owns everything, quote, for the common good, unquote. That's another, another aberration because it just concentrates power in the hands of the state and the bureaucrats who run the state. I mean, the you know, basic Christian values um, look to the individual and have confidence that respecting individuals is the way to proceed. Now, that may not maximize profits because you're paying living wages to your employees. But in the process, you sustain a loyal labor force and you create consumers for the goods that you're producing. It requires long-term thinking and moral thinking to understand that that's in everybody's best interest. Now, now, rather than having government coercion of those kind of activities, which I find often does not work because the government officials are bought and paid for by the, the corporate people who do not want those behaviors, having a strong and active, awake society that applies good, solid peer pressure to others in their community to behave in that function is probably the best and safest long-term way to achieve those goals, right? I agree. I mean, you got to start out with, how you moral education of children. You gotta make your kids aware that, you know, things are wrong and right, uh, not just because you say so, but because that's how the way human beings are created, it's how the world exists. You know, lying is wrong for all kinds of different reasons. It basically is um, a negation of value, it's a negation of light, it's a negation of truth. And if you don't operate in light and truth, you're not going to go very far. Do you think these principles are being taught at the current classes at Harvard, the ones that are going through the Absolutely same path? Absolutely not. They don't care at all. They're, Harvard has come to be, you know, again, a quantitative mathematical analysis, and the only thing that is measured or valued are the material entities. If you really try to attend a Harvard business class, or if you try to uh, an economics class, or the political classes, and enter issues of morality or right and wrong, you might be tolerated and listened to, but you know the real politics that dominates their thinking doesn't allow any room for moral calculations. Hmm. And I found very few professors at Harvard that were willing to raise those questions and think by them. I found some both on the left and right that understood the value of morals, 
and I spent time with them, and I sought them out. But they were by no means the majority. Mm. No, no, no wonder they must squash homeschooling because these children might otherwise incidentally be taught such kind of values. And Well, that's the thing. Is, and the parents can't be relied upon because the parents are going to want the kids to turn out to be moral human beings that they're going to be proud of. What the public school wants, what the state wants is, you know, uh, producers who won't cause any problems, who can be allow their labor to be exploited mm-hmm. without much return. And Uncle Joe Stalin understood that very well. That's why he had to get kids away from their parents and begin training them, well, correct? So did the Nazis. The Nazis had lots of systems where they, the Nazis attacked the families just like the communists attacked the families. Hmm. They, you know, they did not want, they wanted state control. The children were made into Hitler youth as early as they could be put into it. So the family and the church are two probably the greatest threats that this corporatism slash fascism has to face. Right, and it also then the fascism attacks nation states. It attacks the idea just like they attack the idea of God and families, they say, well nation states like George Soros says or when kings had castles or you know, like uh, on the right, David Rockefeller says, you know, my corporations op- operate in 60 countries. Why do I need your currency or your laws or to respect your boundaries? Uh, well, the, the truth is human beings on a moral basis need families. They need mothers and fathers. They need states. We need identification. Human beings are, began as tribal people. You know, around the world, we were first tribal, uh, relating to small communities as as such. That's part of human nature. To try to take that out of people and substitute it with bureaucracy and corporate states, uh, you know, you quickly remove God, you remove morality, and people don't have a moral compass with which to live their lives. Yeah, people should really look at what happened to, to Russia when the, the wall came down. And basically, you pulled the only ideological underpinnings they had with communism, and they were left, you know, they're wonderful, wonderful people, but but largely a shell without that underpinning that they put their whole foundation upon. It almost reminds me of the Romanian orphans that didn't have any kind of uh, loving, supportive environment around them to grow, and it stunted their growth because they were isolated from human interaction. And, and, and a whole society can almost become that way when they become separated mm. from the, the connections to family and faith and community. Uh, they're almost orphans, in, in fact, and become stunted in their, in their philosophical and spiritual growth. Yeah, and people get to be so you know, sophisticated. And, and at Harvard and the universities, they're supposed to be so educated and urbane that they think it's too simple-minded to believe in God and family and have morals as your primary concern. Yeah. Well, we should have learned over and over and over again in human history that societies that go down these paths end up in the dustbin. Mm-hmm. That the societies that you know thrive are societies that were constituted as moral societies and mm-hmm. remain moral societies and cared about these values. Dr. Corsi, the the, uh, the earlier information we were talking about with this action uh, with these committees on the security and prosperity partnership evolving into this North American entity, uh, are they breaking any laws? Is there anything, any accountability 
that we can hold over their head at all. I know a lot of these, are, there's a few elected officials, but a whole lot of unelected officials that are doing things, and then we can wake up overnight and find out they've written the rules for us. Uh, is there anything that, that we can hold them accountable to right now? Well, I think it's basically a coup d'etat by a bureaucratic coup d'etat. I mean, you don't have any treaty. You don't have any law. They might argue that some of this is an extension of NAFTA, but I don't, I mean, it's a very, you know, such a broad extension, you can't find any explicit authorization in NAFTA for much of what's going on. Uh, there's nothing in our Constitution that allows working groups to be constituted with other nations and to be meeting on a regular basis, especially without the detailed, informed knowledge that a Congress. Congress doesn't do its job. Congress is asleep and not following this. And when you ask the you know congressmen about it, they are also uh, you know basically brainwashed to accept free trade. That they'll just give you answers about how this is for our security and our mm-hmm. prosperity. And these corporate Anybody, sponsors are the ones who line a lot of their pockets with the corporate donations. They no need. question about it. Or they will go take a spot working for that company as soon as they get out of office exactly. and have already done the deed. Precisely, and I mean you know the. The, the profit motive is what drives this. If you say, well, look, I can go move my manufacturing to China and pay nothing for my labor, of course, that that's what necessitates the reconstitution of the transportation system because if you can produce these goods with slaves, that does you no good unless you can bring those same goods back into the heart of America cheaply, which means you've got to design everything around a container movement system. These goods have to be produced to be put in containers, moved cheaply in containers. You don't want them unloaded by longshoremen in Long Beach and Los Angeles. It's too expensive. Or moved across country by you know, United Transportation workers in trains or uh, truck drivers paid American wages. You want Mexican dock workers, Mexican truck drivers, and Mexican trains. And then you want the whole... They've, we've redesigned all of our Economics. I mean, the transportation economics is now on corridors to move containers. The containers are intermodal. Intermodal means you can pack the container once in China. You'll put it in a big container island. They're building these artificial islands out in the North China Sea. There are 300 football fields in, in area. Uh, and they pack wow. them with containers. They're building container ships. That are 12, will carry 12,500 containers. That's about four times the size of any container ship you've ever seen with a crew of 13. Uh, they'll bring them and unload them. It may take a week to unload these container ships. The new generation is so huge. They don't fit through the Panama Canal. They're post-Panamax. Mm-hmm. So they're going to deepen and widen the Panama Canal. And then they'll have north-south routes once the containers come in through these the underbelly of the United States into North America, they'll travel up, you know, these corridors. I-35 will be reconfigured into the Trans-Texas Corridor. You'll have another version of that extending from Laredo, Texas, up to Denver. You've got Canamex, which comes in in the western states by Reno and comes down south that way. Uh, South of Los Angeles and Long Beach, uh, Hutchinson Ports Holding, which is a communist Chinese Ports management firm that operates Lazaro Cardenas in Manzanilla is developing another deep water port at Punta Colonet. Uh, once the Panama Canal is deepened and widened by Panama, uh, then ports like New Orleans expect they'll become major container offloading sites. 
bring the containers up through Louisiana. Same in Houston and Corpus Christi. Uh, they also think they'll have huge container traffic then coming on to uh, Miami. It'll come up on I-95. And every one of these corridor systems has corridor coalitions in which they're planning to uh, intermodal. So the container's packed one time. It's loaded onto a container ship. When it gets to Lazaro Cardenas, it's unpacked with a crane. It's put on a trucker train. It's moved to a inland port city like Los An- like uh, San Antonio or, De- or Kansas City or Denver. These inland port cities, you know, the water that makes them a port is not the River Walk in San Antonio or the Platte River in Colorado. It's Lazaro Cardenas in the Pacific. And the containers that are put in these giant warehouses, you've got, you know, the Union Pacific and the other railroads putting millions of dollars into these super railroad warehouses where the containers are again offloaded by a crane and they're put on trucks and trains and driven to local points of distribution. They do it all through supply side economics, in which you, with computer models, determine, you know, what you need produced and delivered when to be assembled with what. You bring it all together from different parts of the parts of the world, unload it in containers and put it together at the point of assembly or at the point of distribution. Now you almost need a one world government to make all that operate yeah, so massively. Yeah. Well that's to... the point. And they don't want currency risk. They want to have you know currency risk. We've already got problems in North America. You've got multi billionaires up in Canada who invest in the exporting companies in Canada complaining that the Canadian dollar strengthening hurts their investments because Canadian exports become more expensive. If the Canadian dollar were pegged to the U.S. dollar, if we had a Canadian-U.S. currency, currency risk would be taken out of the equation. So uh, what's, what's interesting when I hear you share all this, and, and what you shared with us was, was based upon many, many years of research you've been doing, and I, I have seen, as, as you've uncovered, little tidbits of the Chinese buying this or or they've secured this or different groups do this and you put the whole pieces together for the people who care to follow along with you and your work and see the big picture of what's going on and I know this is stuff that has been minimum decades in the process of detailed acquisitions whether it's the Chinese buying ports in Los Angeles or the Panama Canal or or these kind of things but what this tells me just sitting back and listening to what you're saying is uh, particularly from a from a Christian worldview, when we look at all things and where the world is going in the, in the end time view, we focus a lot on the politics. We focus a lot on other spiritual things, but the bottom line is this age old adage of count, of uh, follow the money uh, makes a lot of these things a reality, and it's just good old fashioned greed, like you said, that makes a lot of these evils uh, pragmatic and reasonable. Uh, to occur, and it, this is not original. Uh, there was big profit motives to be made in Italy and Germany in World War II, and now we're seeing uh, people's greed setting up something that will lead to totalitarian people over every aspect of their lives. It's it's really like the uh, the great city Babylon talked about in Revelation. You know, a lot of people don't talk about that aspect of the book. They talk about the Antichrist. They talk about all these other things. But but there's this huge economic engine that facilitates that whole vision of the the uh, the world in the last days, and there's just so much truth to it. It's the money is what really makes this world go around and run. So, so in a sense, you're saying that maybe Mystery Babylon could in fact be 
the economic system well, or I'm, heavily contributive to it? I'm talking about the city Babylon, which okay. is in the following chapter, which which uh, exchanges, it says, in all of these various products, including the souls of men. But it's just good old-fashioned greed and money economics. And I didn't mean to drag you into all that, Dr. Corsi, well, but you know, that's what goes through my mind when I hear father, what you're describing. My father was with the Brotherhood of Railroad Trainmen when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. He, he was the uh, public relations director, and he helped create the United Transportation Union. And I spent a lot of time with him. My brother is in transportation economics. He's a professor at the University of Maryland. We hardly agree on anything. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, look, my father, would I understood from the time I was a kid that the way transportation is is not accidental. you got to ask, why is it this way? Mm-hmm. And, you know, Abraham Lincoln not only unified the North and South, he unified the East and the West. He created the legislation for the Transcontinental Railroad. He was a railroad man. He understood the need to have a rail system that could move goods and people and do so to connect areas of the country that otherwise were remote. Uh, in the 50s, when we did not have an interstate transportation system, it was very difficult to drive you know, from Cleveland, Ohio, where I was born, down to Florida or to California because you had to go through so so many small towns, so many stoplights, it took forever. And Eisenhower understood this. Eisenhower, before World War II, had been involved with leading a military expedition to cross the United States just in an exercise to see what it would take. Now, now Dr. He, Corsi, just to, he, he observed what was better in Germany. Right? I don't mean to steal your thunder. With on your the bonus. Autobahn. He saw the Autobahn and what Germany had done with the Autobahn. Mm-hmm. And he created a interstate transportation system that connected cities and made transportation within the United States uh, workable. Our primary transportation routes are still east and west. Now, we have some north and south routes. You know, we've got Interstate 95 that connects from New England down to Florida. But I-95 has been primarily constructed to be a New England route and then to be a route that connected uh, from New Jersey down into Washington, down into uh, the Carolinas, and connect from the Carolinas down into uh, Florida. So it was never considered to be a north-south corridor, whereas highways that went east and west were always considered to be east-west corridors. In fact, we've got three levels of them. We've got one set of interstate highways that cross the United States down at the level of Arizona, you know, going in the southern route. We've got another that crossed the United States in the middle at the at the level of Kansas. And we've got another level interstate uh interstates are like eighty that cross at the level of Cleveland. We've got three levels of interstate highways going east and west. And those were the most developed and the first developed and then filled in with north south routes. We only have really one Canada to Mexico highway that was ever conceived of as such, and that's Interstate 35. That was always the only real north-south corridor we've got. Now, the reconfiguration of these containers coming in emphasizes north-south corridors, not so much east and west. Hmm. And that's where the reconfiguration is going on to be north-south. That's why I-35 is going to be the first. And they can't redo I-35. The way I-35 was designed... It was, again, still mostly an inner-city highway. The bridges 
since 1990s, the Federal Highway Administration has been holding hearings and writing reports saying the bridge infrastructure won't handle the truck traffic. It's not separate truck lines from car lines with separate train lines. A north-south corridor to move port, to move containers needs that configuration. Uh, the trains cannot use eminent domain. They can't take the land. But if the train corridor is built in the middle of the highway corridor, the four football fields wide Trans-Texas corridor, eminent domain can take the land and then lease it to the railroads. Mm-hmm. That's what's being done. You need the railroads because one train might move three to 500 containers. One truck's going to move one or two containers. So your trucks hmm. are like, you know, if you, look, if you imagine your transportation system like golf, your uh, trains are your drivers and your big clubs. Mm-hmm. And your trucks are the short clubs down to the putter. Right, right. Well, now, my guess is for all of this massive money spent in this infrastructure, what Americans are going to see is not American-made goods flowing down this, Absolutely but not. Chinese-made goods or other similarly imported goods, and we're going to make it even cheaper and more cost-effective to import these other goods and make the American worker even that much less competitive as a result. Well, that's right. And see, the first of all, the goods are going to be mass-produced by slave labor. So that means, by definition, the quality is going to be diminished. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and quality control will not be the major consideration. Uh, lead paint, you know, the, the toy companies doing the lead paint knew it was there. It's just a cost of business to have a certain number of those toys found and thrown out. That, mm-hmm. That's still cheaper than paying the labor mm-hmm. and getting the materials not to use lead paint. Well, thank goodness most of those brain cells were already killed by the fluoridated water right. before the paint ships. So. And, you know, the manufacturing that goes on with the slaves it'll take it it'll take 50 years before china goes through some of the problems that every slave state goes through where the slaves don't want to do it anymore mm-hmm. but take 50 to 100 years to get to that point well they're less likely to uh, sit on their guns and not turn them on their own people although that may be changing everywhere we've already seen that when things get desperate Chinese will turn their guns on their own people in a second right yeah it's a heartbeat that won't that won't even cause them a loss of a night's yeah. sleep the question comes is is our own country uh, how will our own country respond well the middle class of the united states will be destroyed within one generation or close to it i mean wow between the bringing in of Mexico's underclass and supporting it and having it undercut jobs in the middle, uh, you know, the lower-paying jobs uh, for the middle class, and having the outsourcing of manufacturing jobs, the only thing that's going to be left are the higher-skilled managerial jobs, uh, finance jobs in corporations, and, um, you know, some middle management kinds of structures that require educated employees. Even the technical services of accounting or legal research or uh, engineering or, you know, uh, kind of research for computer scientists can be produced by India, mm-hmm. other countries such as India, cheaper. Right. And they can also import those workers here. As I understand they it, import those workers the here. top importer of nurses in the world is the Philippines. 
And Arson, they've they've made that a really? major major part, wow. and, and and so we can bring in Indian engineers and Filipino or whatever a group to do other medical professional jobs. So you mean exporter of ex- nurse food? Yeah, nurses. they export them. We will I import see. them. Right. Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, so the, the idea is that globalism is going to mean I'll find some underclass person, including a slave, to do your job cheaper than you. I'll regardless what your job is. I was on a panel and. and um, Las Vegas with Stephen Moore, who is a writer, economics writer for the Wall Street Journal. And uh, Moore gave a speech before me, and he was praising globalism, how wonderful it is that we have all these cheaper goods, and uh, consumers benefit from that, and how uh, wonderful it was that our exports are increasing and that world trade numbers are going up. And I got up after him and I said, look, the only thing Mr. Moore doesn't realize and is praising a globalism is that the Wall Street Journal is going to be able to find, you know, two Indian PhDs that will write four times the columns he does at half the price. <laughs> and if he doesn't realize that today, I want to introduce him to Mr. Murdoch and talk to him a year after Murdoch has the paper. Well, sure enough, the first thing Murdoch did when he came in is he closed down their offices in Wall, on Wall Street and moved them all up to his News Corp build, building in Midtown. Mm-hmm. Those mm-hmm. guys, and I've known a lot of those guys, Daniel Henninger, who is the um, one of the senior editors of the Wall Street Journal's editorial page, sat next to me in high school. Mm. Wow. And I don't talk either. Well, well, Dr. Corsi, in our last uh, half hour that we have roughly here, I want to focus on some things of what we can do. And I know there is so much more information you could share with us. But one thing I want to ask is about our elected officials. They are supposedly supposed to be accountable to us. Uh, we know some of them have some involvement, whether they admit it or not, in some of these activities, as well as the, the corporate folk. Um, wh- what are the kind of things we can look for to see if our particular elected officials are involved in these kind of activities? Are there certain votes that they're taking or, you know, certain votes on, say, the border fence or this or that, certain telltale signs we can see and suspect that we have some collusion from people who we're electing? Well, there's lots of telltale signs and votes. There's lots of votes that come up. I mean, the Columbia Free Trade Bill, see how they voted on that, the Comprehensive Immigration Reform, the Kennedy-McCain legislation. There's lots of votes. You can just write them a letter and ask them, you know, why they aren't demanding hearings on the Security and Prosperity Partnership. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand McCain would probably be generally fully supportive of this, correct? McCain is fully supportive. All, all three of these candidates, including Hillary, who's now dropped out, more or less. I don't think Hillary's really dropped out. They're all um, Council on Foreign Relations, Bilderberger-type candidates. They're all uh, globalists, mm-hmm. including Obama. Obama may be the biggest globalist of the bunch. Well, when you mentioned three, I want to make sure you weren't talking about uh, Pastor Chuck Baldwin from the Constitution Party. No, Chuck Baldwin is very different. He's the one, <laughs> I'll, he's, he's the one I'll vote for. And uh, me Ron too. Paul's, Ron Paul is very different. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, Ron Paul is opposed to all of this and has been very outspoken on it. Uh, but if you just write your congressman or senator a letter and ask them why they aren't demanding hearings on the Security and Prosperity Partnership in North America, Whatever letter you get back will tell you exactly where they stand. So should should we interpret then for our listeners that maybe they shouldn't be so much focused 
on certain things that their their candidates are promising them that they'll do uh, regarding promises on uh, judicial appointments that they nevertheless choose to ignore once they get in office or to do certain um, moral uh, crusades here and there that they ignore once they've gotten their vote, that we need to look deeper at some other things that can affect the welfare of their families? Yeah, I mean, all those are important, but I think if you want to focus on this issue, the litmus question is, you know, why aren't you demanding hearings on the Security and Prosperity Partnership and see how they respond? Because that's a, a good way of, to, you know, if they're going to write you back and tell you this is all for the interests of security and prosperity and, you know, whatever they decide to tell you, don't just take their answer. Uh, you've got to go to the government websites and say, well, that's fine, but why on SPP.gov and the meeting up in Monticello, Quebec, in, in August 9, 2007, did you have our bureaucrats sign an agreement with Mexico and Canada on avian flu and influenza pandemic where they all agreed that if we had a, an outbreak of avian flu or pandemic influenza, the United Nations rules would apply. Mm-hmm. The United Nations would be in charge of determining how the incident was handled. Mm-hmm. And they signed that? They signed it. Oh, man. On the website. Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh, Dr. Corsi, um, what are some next steps that you expect we're going to see from these groups that they're going to take uh, leading up to, to an end game? What should we be on a lookout for? Well, they're constantly holding meetings and passing new structures. They put into place now a... In April 2007, George Bush put into place with his own signature again this Transatlantic Economic Council, uh, which, again, very few people know about it. Merkel from Germany came to the White House along with one of the top officials from the European Union, and the three of them just signed it. The goal is by about 2015 to have a transatlantic union combining the North America with the United States as the lead and a common market structure with the European Union. And that will be the first step towards a transatlantic union. I mean, it's going on at a very fast pace worldwide. Africa has created the African Union. In May, uh, 13 South American countries got together and formed UNICER, which is the South American common market. Mm-hmm. It's These things have been put into place and people have barely noticed them. And, and if I remember right, the European Union made the mistake of letting some of the countries vote on it that was resoundingly defeated, so they decided to get it pulled about by other means and not make that mistake again. Yeah, they went to a treaty, and the treaty was soundly rejected and by a couple of countries voted against it. And so now that they've got this uh, Lisbon agreement, which they're putting to accomplish the same thing that the Constitution that was voted down uh, would have accomplished, but they're able just to sign it at the executive level and not put it to popular referendum. Mm-hmm. And so there's debates in London about this and in other countries because they're all signing this Treaty of Lisbon. They're all agreeing to it through the executives of the countries without the people being allowed to vote on it. And, and I'm sure that these other groups have watched that uh, that, that whole process and have made, made the point to self not to allow them to be exposed to that kind of critique again and to try to do everything they can not to put it up to a vote. I've got a library of books on globalism where, you know, starting with John Monet's memoirs and um, books like, this is written by a book here by a guy named Hallstein called Europe in the Making. 
He was one of the top officials of the European Union. His name was Walter Hallstein, with an introduction by George W. Ball. Uh, he openly talks about how lying and deception and taking incremental steps is part of creating these regional structures, and he openly discloses the methodologies and the plans. Mm. i got another shelf full of books here by a Japanese guy named Omei, O-H-M-A-E. One is called The... Um, the End of the Nation State. Another one of his books here is called um, The Borderless World. Okay, Power and Strategy in the Interlocked Economy. Management Lessons in the New Logic of the Global Marketplace. Well, Omey was one of the top advisors to Bill Clinton. He was one mm. of Bill Clinton's buddies. Nobody knew about it. He wrote a half a dozen books. His books openly proclaim what he wants to do. Every single paragraph of them do i could pick hmm. paragraphs you know at random so these are old plans that they're just methodically putting in place right um you know it's just it's the they talk about how uh just go to you know friedman's book a flat world mm-hmm. you know his whole flat world idea is the same globalism you know, kind of warmed over in a popular form. There's tons of this stuff written, and it's all out there. Uh, you can go back to um, Clarence Street, or Strait, S-T-R-E-I-T. He wrote a book, i got a copy of it right here, called Union Now. He published it just before World War II. Uh, his whole idea was that the uh, democracies of the world ought to create a democratic union to form a you know of a um, a world union of democracies mm-hmm. to combat the Nazis mm-hmm. you know Clarence Strait's now famous book I'm just reading from the book jacket Union now first presented the idea of a world union of the democracies from various sources came details that such a union could ever work in actual practice. Okay, today with the British Commonwealth and the United States representing the democracies, the idea of union between these two great entities is being proposed as a practical solution by millions of individuals in book con- both countries. This mm-hmm. book straight explains how to make it work. <laughs> so the first idea for a transatlantic union comes right here. Clarence Strait was the first to propose a fully developed plan for federal union mm-hmm. among the democracies. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Corsi... Um Something, something our listeners are going to want to know is, is there any hope for us? Is there anything that we can do as a society to put the brakes on these activities? And if not, is there at least anything we can do for our families to help best protect them well, from the, this environment? What they can't stand is the exposure of the light of day. These things proceed because, going back to Hegel, you know, and the... Hegel had this whole idea of the uh, development of, you know, historic development of human consciousness into the emergence of pure reason through a dialectic. And this is where Marx got a lot of the stuff. And it ended up with we were all going to live in a bureaucratic state that was going to be ruled by these perfectly revolved rules implemented in truth and justice. Well, it's all nonsense. Hegel had never met a bureaucrat. They're the most petty people on the face of the earth, and they just implement their own 
personal policies for their own personal advantage. You got to go back to Aristotle. Aristotle said everything human beings do is political. All human beings are political. If you have a marriage, you're into a political arrangement. You have children, you got a political arrangement. Everything people do has to deal with politics because everything, because people think in terms of power. And so from Aristotle's point of view, the best form of government was a limited constitutional republic. Aristotle's the one who thought up our form of government because he said the checks and balances are what protect people because it makes it difficult to do anything. Mm-hmm. That's the genius of our system, to make it difficult for any one of the branches of government to do anything. Well, Under the idea that the constitutional republic put together to preserve God-given freedoms without the idea that human consciousness is going to advance at all or that we're going to you know, have bureaucrats run anything. We're political and we always need to fight it out. That's what Aristotle said and Aristotle was right. Under the framework that there's some God-given values that are supposed to be at the heart of this constitutional republic, and the purpose is just to maintain those God, God-given freedoms. And they're very simple freedoms. Self-expression, the right to believe and profess in God the way you want to do it. Um, you know, fundamental things that are not much different from the Ten Commandments. Well, beyond exposing these type things and becoming educated, and you're doing a wonderful job to help us in exposing this, are there other tangible things we can do to protect our neighbors and our fellow citizens or even just our family? Well, first, I mean, there, there are political things to be done. There, on state levels, there's grassroots movements to get state legislatures to have no North American unions, to have no NAFTA superhighways. There's community involvement to get these ideas out and do protest them. An awfully lot's been done to secure the borders. There's still a lot more to be done, just by the Minutemen and getting the message out. Uh, that's changed the debate. Does it mean we might have to even go so far as to maybe not support the, quote, major political candidates well, if they're so. counter I mean, I, to our beliefs? I think that both political parties are about the same. I mean, I'm going to oppose very strongly Obama because I think he's by far the most dangerous of the candidates out there. Um, but, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a supporter of McCain. I'll, I expect if McCain wins, I'll fight him for four years or eight years if he's in office that long. I expect to be fighting McCain, but I I expect to have some success fighting McCain, whereas I don't expect to have any success fighting Obama. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons I support, you know, it's one of the reasons I want to defeat Obama. Mm-hmm. And then there's going to be emergence of new third parties. I think Chuck Baldwin is a candidate to support. I think Ron Paul is a candidate to support. I think in terms of people's families, they've just got to make sure you're out of debt, that you're paying off your mortgages, that you're not living beyond your means or in a property that you could lose, uh, with the expectation that employment is not certain and uh, increasing prices under inflationary settings is going to be the rule rather than the exception. So you've got to make sure that you can live owning what you need to live. Hmm. You know, that's. I think there'll be mm-hmm. people who, in different communities where they can, will think about, you know, self-sufficient farming again and some ability to live in a more rural community where they can get by producing what they need in conjunction with neighbors. I think these ideas are going to return because I think people are not going to be 
feeling comfortable to be dependent on the agribusinesses. Mm-hmm. And I think as long as people can home educate their children and think about keeping them out of the public schools, these are all good things to give consideration to. Okay. And, and, and regarding careers, probably never decide that uh, you're at happily ever after state. It's going to be a competitive world, right? You're going to need to continue to advance your skills and Absolutely. constantly have to sell yourself to make yourself viable. A lot of job change. Ex- yeah. expect, every employment. expect change. Expect that yeah. you're mm-hmm. going to do something now yeah. for a while. And you've got to prove your value perpetually yeah. when you're in the workforce. It'd be better to pick a mate that, you know, somebody to be married to that you can talk to you can work with over time, develop a relationship. People need to get back to staying in relationships and not hmm. abandoning them as, as a convenience because something is, you know, not as glamorous or as easy as they or they think there may be some perfect somewhere else. Uh, work with what you've got. Hmm. Same with your kids. Make you know, work with them to get them to be as developed as as you can do, mm-hmm. um, with the expectation that things are not going to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Well, so those, I, I, those are fundamental lessons that I think have our time tested going back centuries. Well, thank you for sharing that with us because I don't know if you get asked that very often in, in your other discussions because you have so much cutting-edge information. In our last few minutes, I have one other question to ask you that's a little sensitive. Sure. And that's because we have a large Christian audience uh, where we are in our discussion tonight. And what you've what you've talked about is of benefit and utility to everyone in our society. But we're we're at a strange state now with evangelical Christianity, where where we have some people. Uh, in within Christianity that do not want to be concerned about political or social issues like we talk about tonight because they feel like it's it's a little beneath them spiritually. They want to stay focused on things of the kingdom of heaven, the Great Commission, internal church activities, things like that. There's yet other people who just want to wait it out. They're waiting for the Lord to come back. They know it's going to get bad. They don't expect to have any impact, so they're going to just sort of hole out and wait for the Lord to come back to get them. And, and then on the other spectrum, you've got uh, people who've been very, very active uh, that are evangelical Christians and trying to be a moral force in government, but they have spent a lot of time and energy sort of hitching their wagon up to what they perceive to be the powers that be, say in a certain political party. And uh, no matter what this political party does and whether they regard them or not, uh, with uh, you know responding to the influence and in, in their own loyalty, uh, they're finding it hard uh, not to be supportive with them or to say things that are counter, even if the, the candidates that they have are, are against the very views that they have. So we have people sort of in two extremes, these people that feel like they have, they have capital and power invested in a particular party that, that has gone on and done other things, or we have people that just do want to, want to get engaged at all. Uh, as a person of faith yourself, uh, how do you... How do you think that those who hold a Christian faith and a biblical worldview should respond to the kind of information you've talked about and this whole issue with globalist elites who currently promote their own agenda to the detriment of Americans or fellow citizens and other citizens of the world? Well, I think, you know, there's, first of all, there's uh, lots of different ways people respond, and um, people of faith can respond different ways. I'm, I'm always reminded, you know, there are. There are many different rooms and you know many mansions in heaven. There are right. Many different, mm-hmm. It's not just one path or one way. Right. And people have some different choices that they can make that I would consider all to be moral choices. 
I think there are various parts of the Bible that also encourage people to get involved. You know, it's you were encouraged to understand. I mean, I I take from stories of, you know, Abraham and going back to Sodom and Gomorrah and other stories where God basically is looking for one moral person in the whole town, mm-hmm. one person to be involved. They could actually protect the entire city. Right. I mean, it's, God doesn't go in and say, I need to find... Might start out by saying I need to find a, a large number, but by the time God's finished bargaining and the people are, are looking for the moral people, the number gets considerably reduced and God's willing still to settle. Mm-hmm. You know, so it doesn't take everybody. It takes some people to be involved and not everybody's going to have the, necessarily the time or the skill or the interest or the inclination to be as involved as others. Um, and that's, probably the way it's all sorted out meant to be. But I think that people, to the extent they can educate themselves and get involved and pick a path and stick to it to try to make an impact can realize some value in their own lives and feel they're accomplishing something that is a mission that is consistent with God's law and God's will. God's mandating us not only to be moral in our own lives, but to try to leave something here that makes an impact to others. And uh, it's got to be done in a way of persuasion. I mean, I don't, I think people have free will, and if they choose to not agree, well, then we just debate them and fight with them and talk with them, and, you know, the end of nobody's convinced, we shake hands and go Mm -hmm. off. So you mean don't force laws on people, in other words? Yeah, I mean, I'm not into, I'm into, everybody's got to make their own, it's got to be, clear to them, and some people fight it. I mean, I was in the green room waiting to go on to Glenn Beck's show. Glenn Beck came and introduced himself to me. I was very surprised. A lot of the major hosts rarely do that, and he was totally unlike himself on air. He was very humble and very unassuming, and he said he had fought for years by arguments about the North American Union, and then finally just decided one day that I was right. He didn't have any other explanation for why the borders were being left open. And in his book, you know, the incon- inconvenient, whatever it was, in- inconvenient government, or his most recent book, I've got a copy of it here, he wrote a whole chapter that was based on my research. Wow. And, cool. you know, he asked if I minded that. And I said, no, I was very happy he did it. He called Inconvenient Book. <laughs> and he wrote a whole chapter in here towards the end, and several people, including at Simon Schuster, said to me they thought it was the best chapter in his book, really brought it all together for him when he was talking about um, how this all comes together in a push for a North American Union. And, you know, when Glenn Beck said all that, and he was, I could tell he was being very truthful about it, um, it, it was a moment where I said, okay, here's a guy who had fought it, and I had never met, but was just by writing, he was reading it and thinking, and eventually he came around to see the point. Hmm. And that, to me, was more important than if I'd gone up to him and argued with him and called him names. You know, people, I'm, It's okay with me if people disagree with me. Mm-hmm. I do expect to fight it out with them and, and argue that out, and I expect a lot of people will listen and make up their own minds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, Dr. Corsi, what can people in the church today do to support you in your mission 
against these globalist forces that mean terrible, ungodly things for all of us in the world? Well, I'm happy if people take the information in their own lives and have it impact them in the way people consider to be important. Uh, I'm pleased when they read it and think about it and study it and give it thought. And then uh, a lot of people have been involved with the state legislatures. Uh, a lot of people have argued with congressmen and senators. Uh, I think today, you know, when I started writing about this issue a few years ago, I don't think anybody was aware of it. Today, or very few were aware of it. Today, I'm gratified that more people are thinking about it and debating it. And it's not a foregone conclusion that free trade and, you know, these regional governments and the European Union are going to be good for everybody. People are openly asking questions, and I expect that the economics are going to get tougher and people's lives are going to get harder. And when they do, I'll be expecting people to come back and look at things that I've written and said, well, here's an explanation that puts it together. So if they don't see it today like Glenn Beck, they might see it later, and that'll mm-hmm. be fine, too. Well, in conclusion, could you explain to our listeners where they can get a hold of uh, your information, follow follow your books and your other writings? Sure. The um, late, great USA, coming merger with Mexico and Canada, my latest book, it's available on Amazon.com. Just search my name, Jerome, with a J, J-E-R-O-M-E, Corsi, C-O-R-S-I. You'll find the late, great USA. I'm a staff reporter with World Net Daily, and I'm writing there constantly. So WorldNetDaily.com or WMD.com. And we'll put that link on our website. Thank you. And the book is offered on World Net Daily. And we also have a DVD of the book. I gave a three-hour lecture on the Lake Great USA, and it was filmed. And that's a DVD on the Lake Great USA available at WorldNetDaily.com as well. Cool. Great. Well, what we're going to try to do on our end is not only publicize your work, but uh, pray for you, and I ask my listeners to pray for you and your protection. Um, you were probably public enemy number one with these globalists, or at least on their top ten list, uh, because you're getting real tangible information that is smoking gun data of what they're up to. And, and I understand you, your, your name must come up in a lot of these halls and circles behind closed doors. And we just pray that... Uh, the Lord will protect you in your work and that you'll continue fighting the good fight and keeping us informed. Uh, and we would sure love to have you back in the future, too, if you'd be willing to come back. Yeah, I'll, be, I'll be happy to. I'm, I appreciate your prayers. Uh, I, um, I expect that if we just keep producing truth, people are going to read it, and God will take mm-hmm. it from there. That's right. Yeah. And uh, can, you, can you give us just in the last minute a little hint of uh, anything you're working on right now that we might be hearing some more about in well, the future? Well, I'll have a new book on Obama that will be out on August 12th. It's called The Abomination. Okay, Abomination. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and all that's been announced on it so far is that the book will be out and the title will be published by Simon & Schuster. Okay. It's already been posted on um uh, Amazon.com, although the cover is not displayed. And books embargoed, I can't talk about it until it's published. All right. Okay. But That's... I can say that it's written and it's going to be out there, and I'll be doing an audio tape of the book of, uh, Monday and Tuesday next week. Well, i got to know, did you already have a book on uh, Clinton in the can just in case she won? No, it's hard to write a book <laughs> on Clinton. There have been so much already written about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, I know. It's hard to figure out what to write that was new. Those paths are already tread. Yeah. Well, you know? uh, I'm sure it's going to be a, be a blockbuster. Uh, anything else on the globalism front uh, that you'll I'm not be... sure I'll be doing something else. I'd like to do another book on oil. 
Okay. Like, I like to get more out that the oil is not dinosaur soup, that it's abiotic, that it's produced yes. by the earth on a constant basis, that it's available. I'd like to, to uh, write a book about the great oil lie. I haven't had a good title for it yet. Okay. That sounds like a good one. We'll try that's to come not, up. That's not a bad one. <laughs> we'll, we'll work on that, see if we can come up with something yeah. on that end. That's good. The great oil lie is not all that bad. Yeah, yeah. But Abomination's a great title. <laughs> like well, the Lake Great USA was a good title, and I liked Unfit for Command. I thought that was. A, I like my. I think Atomic Iran was a good title. Well, these yeah. these books are now part of the historical record of our country because they've influenced elections. Yeah, they've had a dramatic effect on the public psyche, and uh, we just hope in our little small circle we can spread the great work you're doing to our listeners here. And uh, I'm always ashamed to ask you to come back because you were in such demand with uh, such large national audiences. But I want to thank you for being so loyal to us and being so yeah, flexible and willing great. to come back. You're one of my favorite guests, actually. Well, thank you. It's a great pleasure and honor to be with you, gentlemen. I'll be happy to come back. Well, please come back again soon. And so we'll we'll say goodbye for now, but uh, we'll look forward to having you back when we have some new news to report. Thank you, and God bless. And thank you again. Nothing can change the shape of things. Nothing can change the shape of things to come. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I am Tom Bionic. And it's time every week when we uh, do our review of the news. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I would like to point out that we have a special guest here in the studio with us today. Yeah, we, we don't normally point him out, do we? No, Here in no, the Future Quake yeah. studios. We have him here today. We have a, a Dr. Future's lapdog Pyro with us. He's not a lapdog. He just happens to be in the lap. He is sitting in your lap, and he's only about... Four inches high. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe okay, foot high. Uh-huh. I think that I think that qualifies as a lap dog. Lap dog applies mostly to political candidates and figures. I'm not calling him a political dog candidate. Yeah. He's not running for he's not running for anything as far yeah. as I know. Pyro is offended by what you said. That would apply mostly to figures who are trying to kiss <laughs> up for money or influence. <laughs> All he wants is a comfortable place to sit down during the recording of tomorrow's He's a dog. Tremors. All right, I'll amend it. I'm sorry, Pyro. Here, let me pitch you a little bit. There you go. So here we are at Future Quake Studios for this week's Tomorrow's Tremors, or today's review of the Future's News. Mm-hmm. And we've got some stories, hopefully maybe some unique ones that you haven't had a chance to catch that uh, may have some kind of prophetic influence or something we think maybe you need to know about. And we're always interested in your comments. Uh, later, Merv will... Uh, Remind you again about how to contact us, but just let me say early here, uh, Dr. Future, D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com, Dr. Future, futurequake.com. Let us know what you think about our stories, if you have any comments on them or other things we should talk about. Um, and also I'd like to say, too, that uh, we'll be providing some opinions in here. You may or may not agree with them. They'll be a little different probably than things you hear elsewhere. Uh, often, Tom and I don't agree, right, with things that this we say true. or we sort this of work stuff out. We, we sort of expect everybody to do a little bit of their own. Mm-hmm. discerning you know yeah yeah we we struggle things between he and i here uh anyway and my opinions have changed radically over the last few years it's been quite a journey for me so i'm assuming that's true for all of us but this is a, a time of open discourse and a time where we can mm-hmm. maybe look at some things from a different viewpoint than what you often hear on christian radio at least provide food for thought we appreciate you uh bearing with us in christian love and if you disagree with what we say, uh, provide a good, eloquent response back and, and give us some consideration. And uh, if you say it's okay, we'll read your email on the air. Try to exercise uh, a process of suspending your immediate judgment until you have time to ponder. Uh, like the Indians used to say, uh, 
Don't judge a person until you walk a mile in their moccasins. I don't know if they actually said that, but okay. We'll, we'll hold, go with it. We'll focus on Scripture most of the time. <laughs> I won't do it on, on old, tired Indian bromides. Yeah, but, there, uh, I hope you know. so. All right, here we go. Um, this is from The Independent, which is a U.K. newspaper. Uh, it, the title is, An Ominous Warning That the Rapid Rise in Oil Prices Has Only Just Begun. Uh, it's written by Danny Forstein, Fortson. Excuse me. I don't know what's going on with me this morning. The chief executive of the world's largest energy company has issued the most dire warning yet about the soaring price of oil, predicting that it will hit $250 per barrel in the foreseeable future. The forecast from Alexei Miller. Now, how's that for an easy Russian name? Alexei you Miller. You got off easy this time. Um, um, you praise the Lord on that one. Yeah, I'll get the demigity, Okay. The head of the Kremlin-owned gas giant Gazprom would herald the arrival of $250 per liter petrol and send shockwaves throughout the economy. His comments were the most stark to be expressed by an industry executive. Now, let me interrupt you. $2 per liter. Some of our listeners are going, huh? What is that in dollars per gallon? Not a clue. You're the, you're the mathematician. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm thinking that's close to being on the order of, I think it's 3.76 liters per gallon, I believe. So it's getting up there toward, uh, well, it would be about seven and a half dollars. I was gonna a say, yeah, about eight dollars a gallon, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, 7.52. There you go. There you go. Uh, his comments, uh, blah, 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 blah. Where was I? Now you made me lose my place here. Well, and people would like to know what you're talking about. You know, you could have said like, Two drams per bushel. Yeah, EFA worth of gasoline. <laughs> exactly. <or> exactly. <clears throat> You're right. I'm sorry. I apologize. I apologize. We'll send out conversion kits for anyone who'd like to have it in our <laughs> audience at home. There's a little thumb wheel you can slide along. Yeah, yeah, there you go. We, there you we go. try to use SI units as yeah. best as we can in future quick. And we could do it like in the real and the, the you know, the real and uh, gold and just silver. That's what we could do in this in this conversion kit. You know, how much gold is it going to take to fill up my tank? Uh, yeah, but it would have to be updated up late to the satellite where it perpetually changes. Well, no, changes. you're the technical guy here. Uh, you're the technical guy. That's, that's Oh, that's department. the easy part for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm the idea man yeah, here. Yeah, you see our first-class studio here. That tells you how good I am on electronic communication. It is cool. We've got a laptop. Okay, tell us a All uh, right. the story. Mr. Miller's predictions prediction is well beyond even the most heady market forecasts, the most extreme of which... Uh, fall between 150 and 200 dollars per barrel, and was explained only by vague references to demand from the developing world. It nonetheless stoked an already febrile atmosphere of growing public anger across Europe over a soaring fuel cost that is wreaking havoc at nearly every level of the economy. The British government was urging motorists yesterday not to panic. Buy petrol in anticipation of a strike on Friday by lorry drivers who deliver petrol for four four courts by Royal Dutch Shell, assuring motorists that contingency plans would ensure sufficient supplies. In Spain, the regional government of Catalonia enacted an emergency action plan to bring in fresh food and fuel supplies after nearly half of its four courts ran dry and supermarket shelves were left bare. The situation was the result of the second day of an indefinite nationwide strike staged by lorry drivers in Spain seeking their government's help to contain the, effect of the effects of expensive petrol. Scattering protests by drivers and fishermen in France and Portugal also continued yesterday. In a speech to the European Business Congress of Duval, Duville, France, 
Mr. Miller offered little prospect of relief. He warned that the world was experiencing a fundamental shift in energy prices that will end at a radically new level. We expect that the oil price will approach $250 per barrel in the foreseeable future. Philip Shaw, an economist at Investec Securities, warned that oil at that level would exert an extraordinary drag on the economy at a time when it already is decelerating at a rapid rate. The word is ouch, he said. Forecasts are forecasts, though, and I think it should be treated with some level of skepticism. The most visible result of the $250 oil would be, the, be at the petrol pump, which is already at record at a record 116.9 pence per liters of unleaded. Thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> which is, you know, uh, that's almost a farthing. <laughs> In a fortnight, it could go up. I'm just reading the story. It's uh-huh. from the UK. Yeah, 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 yeah. You might want to get your units worked out before you haul that in front of our listeners. Well, I don't need to tell them how much gas is, exp- how expensive gas is. Okay, now I'm you're pretty, finished. I'm pretty sure they know how much gas is. Okay, then you're done. All right. The price of everything from food to energy would see significant price rises. Household electricity and gas bills are particularly vulnerable. I had thought of that. Power companies have begun warning of a second round of major tariff increases for household bills this year that they say they will need to push through just to break even. Mr. Miller placed some of the blame on financial speculators for oil, oil's price rise. It has more than doubled in the past year, but said that the primary reason is simply supply and demand, driven by the rapidly expanding countries of the developing world, principally China and India. It is a view shared by the International Energy Agency. In its monthly oil report, the, developments, the developed world's energy watchdog said yesterday that the abnormally high prices are largely explained by fundamentals, but whether the price of oil will reach $250 is uncertain at best. Most expect it to reach a breaking point between that figure. The IEA, the IEA said that the high price would eventually choke off demand and a balance between supply and demand would return. What is certain is that for Europe, Mr. Miller's role will become increasingly important as head of the continent's single biggest gas supplier. He also warned against protectionist tendencies in Europe, where worries have grown that the company is being used as a blunt negotiating tool of the Kremlin. He says, The relationship between Gazprom and the Europeans is one of mutual dependence. We rely as much on European consumers as they depend on us. In all frankness, I am concerned about certain protectionist tendencies resurfacing in the EU, how wise it is that the European Commission invents an anti-Gazprom clause to keep investments which are so needed for more more efficient satisfaction of raising demand. Hmm. Well, you know, that thing at the end was very intriguing about the Russians. Mm-hmm. Because while we've been spending the last uh, four, I guess five years, um, spending untold sums of money, um, clearing out block after block, city streets in Iraq, Russia has put their money into creating a monopoly and cartel around the world. Yes. Uh, and energy, and they've already put the demands on Georgia and some other places, uh, brought them to their knees. I'm not talking about Georgia, U.S., I'm talking about Georgia overseas. Yeah. Um, where they've actually, they have a lock on natural gas and other things over there, mm-hmm. and they're using this to wield their influence. So all their money's gone in into creating economic protection. Uh, and almost aggressiveness as opposed to us making wow. regular weapons. Well, yeah, that 
I wonder, there's this, uh, I read this article that was saying that the birth rate in Russia has fallen so dramatically that they're, they may have problems continuing to be a country in 50 years. Mm-hmm. So right. all that, it's, it's weird. They'll have this very effective weapon, and 50 years mm-hmm. from now, if we go that long, we may not have anybody to uh, But you know, the it. Chinese have lots of money, and they have lots of men, but mm-hmm. they don't have enough women. You, you would think something could be worked out between the two countries. There you go. You know. Mm-hmm. Now, Europe's in the same problem. Uh, uh, what they've done is they've brought Islamic immigrants in to keep the population up. And guess what? That's why we see reported now that, that the second most popular baby name in England is Mohammed. Yeah. Well, I've read reports that say that France will no longer be the country as we know it, and it'll cease to be sort of a Christian country. I guess if you can call France a Christian country. Yeah. Could you ever call it a Christian country? Well... They were Catholics for a while, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. But uh, they, uh, I, I don't know. I, 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 they have been, they, they have the worst Islamic problem I hear. They and the Germans. Yeah, well. As, you far, know. As, as far as a clash of cultures, let me say that clearly. Well, I don't mean so just because they have a different religious belief or problem. I don't mean that. I just mean that there's a big cultural difference. Oh, sure, sure. Well, I could see it when I was there. The last time I was there, it was mm-hmm. like, you know, I, I saw a guy get mugged on the street by uh, several Islam, uh, Islamic gentlemen. Mm-hmm. I guess they weren't that gentle. No, I wouldn't call them gentlemen. Did they have, like, canes and top hats while yeah, they were doing it? Yeah, under the... Uh, you know, a monocle? Yes. While yeah. they were mugging. They kind of looked like Mr. Peanut, actually. Yeah, <laughs> or Sebastian Cabot. Yes. You, uh, I don't you know who Sebastian fam- Cabot is. Family Affair? No. Well, anybody out there who's old fogies like me, you'll remember Brian Keith and mm-hmm. uh, Buffy and Jody and Mrs. Beasley and Family Affair. I don't know how that ties into Islamicism because they didn't know. cover that much on that show. So have you got a story for us now? I've got a story. This is more serious. We've, we've, we've had some frivolity today. Um, this is uh, evangelical struggle with politics, uh, a struggle to energize evangelicals. This just came out uh, June 13th. Uh, and uh, the, the, the story from the uh, – this is from Andrew Ward in Indianapolis. I believe it's the Indianapolis newspaper. Uh, it says, as evangelical Christians gathered for the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention in Indianapolis this week, veteran pastors said they had never known such excitement about a presidential election. Unfortunately, what? wait. Unfortunately for John McCain and Barack Obama, they were talking about the contest between six rival candidates to become president of the Southern Baptist Convention, America's largest evangelical group with 16 million members. Uh, when conversation turned to the U.S. presidential election, the mood was gloomier. Four years after helping deliver a second term for George W. Bush, evangelical voters are struggling to summon enthusiasm for the 2008 race. I guess they think the good days are over. It says, uh, right. uh, we feel like we're in trouble, said Raymond James, pastor of a Baptist church in Tampa. There isn't a candidate that represents our values. A quarter of U.S. voters consider themselves evangelical or born again. Christian, and in 2004, nearly 80% supported Mr. Bush of evangelicals. Mm-hmm. 2004. Um, uh, but they uh, failed to unify around a candidate in this year's Republican primaries, allowing Mr. McCain to win the nomination with backing from moderates and independents. The Arizona senator is viewed with deep suspicion by many evangelicals because of his mixed record on social issues, including support for stem cell research when running against Mr. Bush in the 2000 primaries. 
uh, he, he also famously described evangelical leaders such as Pat Robertson and the late Jerry Falwell as, quote, agents of intolerance. Hmm. Um, I used that quote on another show, and I wondered if people would say, oh, I don't remember that, which, you know, it was some time ago. But I'm glad to see an independent source reconfirming uh, my hmm. recollection here. Uh, Mr. McCain has tried to repair relations by highlighting his uh, pro-life voting record, strengthening his opposition to gay marriage, uh, and by promising to appoint conservative federal judges. But most evangelicals remain unconvinced. Rightly or wrongly, we viewed Bush as one of our own, said Michael Griffith, a Baptist pastor in Arkansas. We don't feel the same way about McCain. Now, let me mention about McCain, too. They didn't mention it mm-hmm. here, but um, he was very, very wishy-washy in 2000 when he ran for president. Mm-hmm. And he he said he'd have no problem at all putting on a pro-choice vice president. And he was very different, too. You know, people forget. They have short memories, but that's what I recollect. Yeah. Um, uh, Whereas Mr. Bush won in 2004 by energizing the conservative base, Mr. McCain is more inclined to reach out to swing voters. He is gambling on his ability to fight the election on center ground without losing the evangelical voters who form the bedrock of Republican support. Based on dozens of interviews at the conference, the strategy appears to have a chance of working. While dissatisfaction with McCain was universal, almost everyone questioned said they would vote Republican to stop Obama. So if I understand mm-hmm. this, McCain's strategy is not to provide anything back to his evangelical supporters, but to just scare them. In other words, I'm not going to give you anything, but I'm going right. to scare you about something else. And evangelicals are just jumping on with open arms. Well, uh, I think we should maybe think about that. Okay. Uh, thank you for your strong position on that. that that's a very good way to say it. Um, Richard Land, head of uh, Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission, said evangelicals were horrified by Mr. Obama's extremely pro-choice record. I'm uh, hearing people say, McCain was not my first or second or even third choice, but I'd rather vote for a third-rate fireman than a first-rate arsonist on the issue I care about. I don't know exactly what that means. Well, what if the guy's a third-rate arsonist as well, rather than a first-rate? Or what if he's just a deceptive arsonist? Well, and what if he's a butcher does one or out a the candlestick open? maker? I, I don't know. Are you talking about somebody who poorly does the job of fixing a problem rather than someone who's causing the problem? Oh, I see. Which I think characterizing him that way is the fundamental problem to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, shows how easily we're swayed. Um, winning evangelicals' votes, however, is only half the battle. 2004, evangelicals played a crucial lo- role in mobilizing voters for Mr. Bush. Many solidly Republican states took vacation to volunteer in swing states such as Ohio and Florida. It is hard to imagine them doing the same for McCain. Even if most evangelicals vote for him, they're not going to work very hard to bring other people along, said Cal Jolson, political scientist at SMU. Uh, reporters at the uh, uh, Southern Baptist meeting said Mr. McCain's choice of running mate would be crucial in determining the level of enthusiasm. So they're saying if they throw him a bone, that will salve their consciences. Uh, social, con- right. social conservatives such as Mike Huckabee, the former or- uh, Arkansas governor and Baptist preacher, and might also add the one who, per my recollection of the debate, said he wanted to send the Iranians to hell. Yes, um, or, or I think the exact words... Lead them to hell. Lead them to hell, excuse me. Um, 
I don't have the exact quote in front of me, so it's take it for what it's yeah. worth. I'm going on my recollection sure. here. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to check the debates and verify that, that would be fine. Um, so, uh, anyway, uh, where, where am I here? That would help build trust, they said, if they got Mike Huckabee. A moderate choice, such as Florida Governor Charlie Crist, would spark rebellion. While McCain is struggling to energize evangelicals, there is one subject that could fire them up. California Supreme Court last month struck down a ban on same-sex marriage, freeing homosexuals to wed starting on Monday. Uh, Republicans hope the ruling will, will rally evangelical voters, just as a similar decision by the Massachusetts State Court. So they're saying if they push that button on homosexual marriage, evangelicals will suddenly stand up and go wherever they're told. It's like... Button banana. Yeah. Button banana. <laughs> Button food pellet. Great. Uh, <laughs> I thought my my story was dire. Yeah. Gosh. But while it's far from clear whether gay marriage will prove, and this, you know, consider our audience right now uh, listening mm-hmm. to this. Consider whether gay marriage will prove as a potent as issue this year. Uh, evangelicals have a lower average income than mainstream Christians. Hmm. So evangelicals are outside of mainstream Christians, even though they're one quarter of the entire population. Yeah, how do you, what? That's interesting. Making them particularly sensitive to the economic downturn. A recent opinion poll uh, in the battleground state of Ohio found that 40% of uh, white evangelicals rank jobs and economy as the most important election issue, with just 14% putting abortion and gay marriage top. Uh, I wouldn't uh, be surprised to see evangelicals voting on pocketbook issues rather than values this year. Uh, and according, just we're getting here to the end. According to the national poll published this week by Calvin College, is this like sort of like Calvin Coolidge, Calvin College uh, in Michigan? Seems like Calvin College would already know what the results. It would already be predestined what the results would. Be. I was going to go there, but I thought, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you would say predestinated. Now you wouldn't see like Calvin College in Armenia. No. Um, anyway, okay. Uh, Twenty-four percent of evangelicals plan to vote Democrat in November, up from 19 percent in 2004. Uh, it's not only economic forces uh, that uh, are weakening the Republican stranglehold. Many, okay, here we go. Many younger evangelicals have grown frustrated by the movement's narrow focus on abortion and gay marriage, and are pushing to broaden the agenda to include more left-leaning issues such as poverty and climate change. Uh, oh, we need to hurry up and go. Mm-hmm. Um, We've got to go. Let's talk about this another okay. day. All right. Um, I'm sorry. Our, our time just gets away from us. couple That's, stories. I guess we're just going to have to go to eight hours a day here before too long. And people are going to have to quit making less news. Yes. So we, we won't have as much to care. we got to say goodbye. Goodbye. And uh, we will catch you back uh, next week for another great Future Quick Show. Have a good day. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. 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 quake.